Uh, you know, it was just a year ago that Casey Young graduated from the University of Hawaii, John A. Burns School of Medicine in Kanka'ako. He's now doing his residency at Columbia in New York City. His interest is neurology, and this first year he's been immersed in internal medicine. It's been quite the learning experience uh, dealing with, uh, during this pandemic, and the year is just about half over, though. He shares what it's been, uh, what it was like getting uh, sick with COVID-19 while working on the front lines. I thought that I had these chills, and then, then I didn't, and I thought I was okay for a little bit, and then I felt kind of weird. But then I had a day, only a day of fevers, where I was had a high fever up to like 103, um, and had these terrible myalgias. Um, all my muscles and my body aches, extreme fatigue. I felt like I couldn't do anything. Um, and that the fevers only lasted for a day. Then I had these chills that would come and go every few hours. Um, that would come in waves. And that lasted for almost two weeks. I actually tested the nasal swab, the PCR swab, and that was negative around like day 10 or so. And then I got the COVID antibody testing about a month after the infection had resolved and it was positive. So in retrospect, <laughs> um, yeah, I had COVID. So you were worried because you have a family with young children. I do, yeah. I have a wife and a little four-year-old daughter. And my wife's pregnant, too, so she's in her third trimester. So I'm expecting a second kid coming up. So that must have been kind of stressful for you. I mean, not only just working in that environment, but then just thinking that you might bring something home. It's frightening. Um, and I know, like, some of my other colleagues were trying to make home arrangements that also had children. So I, I wasn't able to do that. All I could do was just disinfect myself and uh, rid myself of all my clothes and shower as soon as I got home. But yeah, it was, also, it was always at the forefront of my mind whether I'd pass that to my family. So what was it like there being in the hospital and treating those patients, you know, uh, as, as this curve just started to build? It was frightening. It was actually, it was a, it was a nightmare. When it first hit, there were patients on the floor all around us, all maxed out on non-rebreather, 15 liters, about to get intubated, and nobody knew how to stop the course of this illness, and so people were getting intubated left and right. Yeah, it felt like a, it really felt like a war zone. Did you ever feel overwhelmed at any point? Many of my colleagues did reach a point where we felt that we weren't sure what else we could do. So yeah, there was a time. This was your first year of residency and you normally work long hours, right? Naturally, work long hours as an intern. With the COVID pandemic, uh, we were really stretched thin. Fortunately, we had, for New York City, a lot of workers come from out of state. They were sent over from California, from Georgia, from many other parts of the U.S. actually to help out, and that really relieved us tremendously. So they were able to um, spell cause you? Because all of our, a lot of our medicine beds Practically all of our medicine beds that were normal floor beds at a time were converted all to ICUs to support you know, the peak at, um, of the disease when everybody was getting intubated. What was the hardest thing for you to deal with, you think? I'd say my personal fear of both giving it to my family as well as being, before I'd had the, the illness and had passed it, I was afraid that I was an asymptomatic carrier and I was spreading it to all these patients that didn't have confirmed COVID 
And so that was also also really weighed on my conscience to wondering whether I was part of the problem. So it's all that uncertainty. Yeah. We've managed to flatten the curve. Any thoughts just kind of reflecting back on the patients that you were working with at the time? Yeah. So at this point, most of the patients in Colombia are, are actually dealing with uh, complications of COVID rather than the active viral illness itself. And there's one patient experience in particular that struck me a couple of weeks ago. It reassured me that we're truly making a difference. I was caring for this 50-year-old man who was hospitalized for over two months with COVID. And I mean, even though he'd cleared his initial viral illness, meaning that his repeat swabs had become negative, he's still very sick from all the complications of the disease. So he had recurrent ventilator-associated pneumonias. He had a pneumothorax from a high pressure that we had to give to maintain his oxygenation. He had a DVT from being unable to move in the bed. And COVID has a lot of hypercoagulability associated with it. He'd also had kidney failure, had temporarily required dialysis. Like the list goes on and on with the complications. He had this bad critical illness, myopathy, polyneuropathy, which is a disease that you get after being bedridden for months with high doses of sedatives and paralytics, um, and your muscles and your nerves deteriorate. And then on top of all that, he had this persistent altered mental status, and he hadn't shown any meaningful responses to the outside world since the time he'd first been intubated. So I'd consulted neurology for this persistent altered mental status, trying to try and determine his prognosis, because... At that point, he wasn't even responding to painful stimuli. But then, almost magically, over the course of 24 hours, he went from being almost completely non-responsive to being fully alert. He's following commands, able to understand the conversation. He's even able to, to mouth words. And I remember looking into his eyes and just knowing that he understood me. He couldn't do physically anything more than just lift his head, wiggle his fingers and toes, but he was awake. And so I reoriented him, told, he, told him he's at Columbia, told him the month and the year that he'd gotten the coronavirus, told him that he'd just woken up after two months of being critically ill. And then later that day, I actually FaceTimed his family, and they were just ecstatic. They're hollering and clapping. Both of his sons were just so stoked to see their father, like, finally awake and interactive. And the patient actually started crying himself. He had these streams of tears, both of happiness and anguish. Yeah, that was... It was very moving. After the family reunion, um, I hung up the phone, and the patient looked me straight in the eyes, and he mouthed the words, thank you. So I'll never forget that moment. That was Casey Young, a recent graduate of the University of Hawaii, John A. Burns School of Medicine. We'll be hearing more of our conversation that we had with him a little later in the hour. But first, we take a pause to take a look across the globe. Job loss in the United States continues to rise. Allegations of workers' rights violations in Congolese mines begins to service, uh, surface, and soccer fans are given some uplifting news. All that and more from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday the 11th of June. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. More Americans lose their jobs because of the pandemic. Rights groups say firms are exploiting workers in Congo's mines and why football fans will be celebrating in Spain. Another one and a half million Americans have lost their jobs, the 10th weekly rise in U.S. unemployment as the pandemic wreaks havoc on a once booming economy. More than 40 million people in the U.S. have now lost their jobs since March. Michelle Fleury reports from New York. 
The number of people who are losing their job is beginning to slow, but that's hardly something to celebrate. For every job opening, 4.6 unemployed workers are competing for that job. Just a few months ago, the situation was in complete reverse, where there were more job openings than there were people looking for work. The German airline Lufthansa, meanwhile, has said it plans to cut 22,000 jobs out of a total of 138,000 because of the pandemic. Passenger numbers fell by 98% in April. Here's Theo Leggett. Lufthansa had already concluded that it would have to reduce its fleet by 100 aircraft as a result of the crisis. It had previously warned that this could affect up to 10,000 jobs. Now, however, it's suggested that the real figure will be much higher because of cuts that will be needed in other parts of its business, such as maintenance and back-office services. The company hopes to limit the number of actual job losses by promoting part-time working and short-term cost-cutting measures. The World Health Organization has warned that coronavirus is accelerating in Africa, with infections spreading outside capital cities. It said the outbreak in the Western Cape in South Africa looks similar to those in Europe and the US. Staying in Africa and campaign groups have accused mining companies in the Democratic Republic of Congo of abusing the rights of workers during the pandemic. Congo supplies about 70% of the world's cobalt, which is used to make rechargeable batteries. The details from our Africa editor, Mary Harper. The rights groups say workers have been told to stay on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or lose their jobs. In six mines, they've been confined for the past two months. Photos show crowded dormitories where it's impossible for workers to keep at a safe distance from each other. Poor sanitation poses another threat of coronavirus infection. The abuse of the Congolese by foreigners stretches far back in history. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases in Russia has now passed half a million, the third highest total in the world. However, its death toll is relatively low at 6,500. The WHO says this is unusual, but the Kremlin denies there's anything strange about its figures. Pakistan has reported its highest daily number of confirmed coronavirus cases so far, with infections rising sharply following the lifting of lockdown measures. Almost 6,000 new cases were recorded in Pakistan. There was also a record daily increase in India with nearly 10,000 new infections. The Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said he won't be coerced by China after Beijing urged Chinese students not to study in Australia in case of racist attacks. The two countries are embroiled in a bitter row after Australia backed calls for an independent investigation into the coronavirus outbreak in China. The Chinese authorities say their advice is based on facts and that Australians need to take a look at themselves. Mr Morrison has been speaking to 2GB Radio in Sydney. One thing Australia will always do is act in our national interests and, and never be intimidated. And I know that Australia provides you know, the best education and tourism products in the world. You know, we're an open trading nation, mate, but I'm never going to try our values in, in response to a coercion from wherever it comes. After three months on hold, top flight football returns to Spain tonight. Third place Sevilla take on Real Betis. No fans are allowed in, but supporters at home can use technology to fill the stands with virtual faces and fake crowd noise. Our sports reporter Matthew Kenyon says La Liga will make up for lost time by holding 110 games in the next 39 days. All the players and the people involved in the games are being tested really, really very frequently and they're going to play really intensely. Every team is playing a game every three or four days for the next couple of months and then hope that they have some decisions about who's won, who's lost. 
Queen Elizabeth has for the first time taken part in a video conference call to thank people in the UK caring for relatives. Four people spoke to her about the sacrifices and challenges they faced. Interesting listening to all your tales and, and stories and I'm very impressed by what, what you have achieved already. I'm very glad to have been able to join you today. Queen Elizabeth. Peru says that its ginger exports have almost tripled during the pandemic because some people believe the spice will boost their immune system. However, there is no evidence it works to prevent people catching COVID-19. That's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the private bank of Bank of Hawaii, committed to the safety and financial security of Hawaii's communities for nearly 125 years. Member FDIC. Learn more at boh.com. You know, earlier in the hour, we heard from Casey Young, uh, who last year graduated from uh, the University of Hawaii Medical School. He's interning at Columbia in New York City. He talked about how really nothing could have prepared uh, him and his cohorts for what uh, they saw in the last few months. Uh, he, along with other staff, uh, contracted the virus. In fact, a top emergency room doctor, uh, Lorna Breen, was one of the casualties who, under the mental stress after contracting COVID, um, took her own life. Breen was the chair of the emergency room department at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital. Here's more of our conversation with Casey Young. Your hospital also saw a number of COVID patients that had complications with their kidneys, right, and required dialysis. That's right, yeah. So just like, I mean, just like that patient that I had described, there was a study that was published, just recently published, that described the first thousand patients that were hospitalized at Columbia from the coronavirus. And I believe like 77 or 78 percent of them had kidney injury, and around 35 percent of them ended up needing dialysis from that. So that's extremely high. Did you have a situation where you ran out of dialysis machines or uh, protective gear, anything like that? Any, you know, ventilators? We were stretched very thin at Columbia at a point, and then now we've since built up a good supply again where if we were to have another second wave that we should be able to manage. But I, I have worked at other hospitals too in New York during this residency and um, some hospitals more than others are really struggling. I was working at another hospital in the Bronx where I was using the same N95 for almost two weeks. And did you have to, like, sterilize your mask every day? Well, I'd, I'd wear another surgical mask on top of that N95, and I had a face shield on top of all that. So I tried to, you know, I do the fit test every day, and I think it worked. I don't know if there's any amount of preparation that could have prepared us for this COVID pandemic, but at least coming from, from Japsum, where family is so important, and being able to bridge that gap in the patients and the families, even though they're physically separated in the hospital, you know, with the COVID policies, and we can't let people in for transmission, just being that provider that can help to reconnect the patient with their families, and when the patient can't speak or communicate themselves, being the one that will advocate or the patient and let the family know, provide that hope and realism for how they're doing. Well, you mentioned that some of your colleagues, some of your doctors also got sick. There are quite a few of my colleagues that got sick, physically sick, and also sick 
psychiatrically. And we were discussing actually one of the most prominent ER doctors, Dr. Lorna Breen, who's a ER doctor at the Allen that um, eventually died from suicide because of all this COVID. Yeah, there's quite a few people lost in the battle. Wow, so it took, took its toll in so many ways. Yeah. Well, anything else that you just want to share just about this whole experience? Um, just want... I mean, I just want the public to know that we're still fighting hard to help these patients to regain some semblance of who they were before, who they are, and we're still fighting for them to keep their identity and help to reconnect with them. I'm a neurology prelim right now, um, so neurology residency is four years, and the first year is, uh, is just internal medicine, where you get a broad basis in medicine first before you specialize. You've not changed your mind just even based on what you've seen out in the field? Actually, I guess that from that patient experience that I described earlier, if anything, that many things that I see help to confirm that I still want to do neurology for that patient that I described is neurologic prognosis and his recovery were really the most meaningful things and being able to predict whether a patient will actually be able to wake up, be able to have their previous life again or be able to move forward you know this is all I'd say at the utmost importance and has confirmed my my past even more so that was a conversation that we had with Casey Young a recent Jabson graduate and now a first-year intern at Columbia University he has been working at different New York hospitals as they battle COVID-19 Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. National outcry of the death of Minneapolis resident George Floyd and the ensuing protests and calls for police reform has caused a number of listeners to call our talkback line. Uh, here's one caller's thoughts on the use of force. My name is Ed Ald from Honolulu. I have a comment regarding the police overreaction, I call it. I wonder why police shoot so many shots when they have to subdue a uh, criminal or someone who's causing problems. Uh, I think there should be a national register where every time a police officer discharges his weapon, it should go to a national registry to keep track of this. And also, the steps should be, as far as I understand, restraining should start with the lowest uh, weapon, I guess, such as a baton, and then it's work, work its way up. And the police officer should be accountable for why he had to go to number five, his gun, and why he had to shoot a deadly blow and why so many shots. Thank you. We also received another call from a listener on a different subject, food security and sustainability during a pandemic. Here's Lloyd from Haiku Maui. In 2010, we started the Farmers Union with a goal of 30,000 people growing something, anything, as we realize that over 90% of our food is imported. In this new world, maybe that'll become the transition economy for all the people in retail that aren't enjoying retail anymore since the numbers 
are down. That's what we really need to do for the future and teach our youth how to grow food, healthy food. You know, we always appreciate your listener feedback. If you feel like uh, contributing your voice to the conversation, uh, mail us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter, or you can just call our talkback line, 792-8217. Joining us for today's Reality Check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light, who is reporting from Kauai. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So you have a story that highlights a doctor who's been working with a number of inmates at the prisons. Yes, Dr. Graham Chilius. He's a doctor in uh, rural Kauai, and uh, he took it upon himself to start volunteering at the jail on Kauai uh, after he noticed a a troubling cycle, um, and that was uh, among his patients who have um, problems with Uh, chemical dependency from drug use. Um, Some of them that he works with, he treats with what's called uh, medication-assisted treatment. Um, And what he found is that for those of his patients who end up getting arrested while he's treating them this way, uh, the treatment stops in jail, and it totally derails the progress that they've been making. Well, I was really kind of stunned at a a little fact in your story where he, I guess he says that uh, in his town, which is like fewer than 2,000 people, that he's actually prescribed med- uh, medication for folks who are suffering from, you know, withdrawals and addiction, to like 500 patients. That's a lot. Yeah, he says that, you know, having a patient die from an overdose is, is really hard to track. Um, it's not always possible to know when that happens because some patients, you know, stop seeing him and um, but he says it's, it's a real possibility and that it feels terrible when that happens. Um, so what he uh, set out to do is to um, work within the correction system to get this medication-assisted treatment offered to inmates while they're incarcerated so that they can either stay on their treatment or newly start up treatment. Um, and he says, you know, this is good health care. Um, and he says this also could help with issues like uh, overcrowding, uh, recidivism. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits to, to working with inmates to, to get this kind of treatment. So tell us about this federal grant that he's been trying to get. Yeah, so so uh, Dr. Chile has sort of just started volunteering uh, totally on an unpaid basis, which is still what he's doing. Um, and his, his work with the staff at the Kauai Jail um, was uh, noticed by the folks at the State Department of Public Safety. So the program that he's doing, it's, it's an unfunded pilot project. And um, the folks at the Department of Public Safety really want to see the work that he's um, doing be mimicked at other jails and prisons across the state um, eventually once this program is up and running. And so in the meantime, the state is looking to get a federal grant um, from a $650,000 grant from the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And what this would do uh, is help the state kind of prep up a program that can be used in all of the jails and prisons in Hawaii. Um, it would, um, you know, provide them with some staff. It would help fund some of the actual medications themselves. Um, and it would help with training of staff members. 
Well, hats off to him for, you know, recognizing the problem and uh, and seeking a solution to be able to help, uh, you know, uh, other inmates uh, across the state. Yeah, because it's not just a problem in Kauai. Um, there's some statistics that 88% of Hawaii inmates have some level of a need for substance abuse treatment. Um, and of that, about 14% of them have a substance abuse problem that qualifies as severe. Um, so there is a lot of need, and for uh, inmates who, who want to have this kind of treatment, uh, it looks like it could be on the horizon. All right. Well, uh, we, uh, we wish the best for him uh, as he works to, uh, to put in the framework uh, that hopefully will help uh, inmates across uh, all the islands. But thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks so much. We have been talking uh, with reporter Brittany Light with uh, today's uh, reality check. Uh, she hails from Honolulu Civil Beat, and to read her story today, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Well, you know, today is a state holiday, King Kamehameha Day, uh, a parade and big celebration that was planned uh, tied to the Festival of the Pacific. You know, they've all been canceled due to the, due to the pandemic. But in the King's honor, we reached back in our archives to look at a book about his life. We talked to Hawaii author Alan Seaton. Historically, he was one of these, in terms of Hawaiian history, a seminal character, a seminal person. Of course, what he was able to do was what other chiefs had been attempting for probably two centuries of warfare, either fighting against other chiefs on their home island or attacking, let's say, the Maui chiefs going after the Kohala chiefs or even the Kauai chiefs attacking Oahu. So there were these battles going on from the 16th century on, periods of peace, then periods of war, periods of peace, then there'd be civil wars, then there'd be inter-island wars. And it fascinated me what he was able to accomplish that the others had not, how the time in history made it possible, but also that his charisma was so powerful that he was able to unify disparate forces and was able to actually accomplish what he felt his destiny was. So the destiny fulfilled, as it seemed, either after the fact or during his life, it seemed that he was the man destined to do the unification of the islands that had been a goal of the chiefs for many, many decades, centuries, actually. And it fascinated me who he was, what I would find out about him as an individual, uh, how he was looked upon even in today's world, which isn't universal. There were many who still resented that this overtaking of events by Kamehameha was possibly something they didn't appreciate. Were you able to attend the ceremonies uh, earlier this year marking his passing? Yes, I went passing? over there, and the ceremony was held adjacent to the uh, birth site. There were the Royal Order of Kamehameha was there. There was a halau dedicated to Kamehameha that was there. Uh, people who were connected to Naeoli, the chief who had rescued him by legend when his uncle had declared that he should be killed because there were signs or that 
this chief was going to be a danger to the chief's own family. He was a nephew of the chief, or a grandnephew. His mother was a niece of the chief. But he ordered the chief to be, the birth, the baby, to be killed. They escaped with the baby, again, in a legendary sense, and took him away to a hidden spot. Again, there's not one specific place that is guaranteed. There are many who believe that it was off in Pololu Valley, in the hidden parts of the valley. He was raised there for five years. When his great uncle passed, his uncle became chief, welcomed him back into the court, and helped to raise him as if he were one of his children. So those were his cousins who he ended up going to war against, and both of them were killed in the Civil War that followed his uncle's death. So talk about the challenges, because when you're dealing with oral histories and conflicts, you know, and different stories from, say, different families, how do you deal with that? You have to do an analysis of what makes sense and what, in the book, I tried when it was necessary to give more than one interpretation in case one was not adequate. That deals with Kamehameha's father. The primary belief with Keuanui was his father. Many of the Hawaiians, as a matter of fact, most of the Kohala people I spoke with believe that Kahikili, the high chief of Maui, who became his primary adversary in war, was really his father, and even his mother claimed that Kahikili was his father. Nonetheless, he accepted the Kiavi branch of the royal families, the Kohala chiefs were descended from Kiavi, as his parentage. When I dealt with this, I felt, well, if so many people believe that Kahikili is the father, how can I ignore this? So I ended up tracking down a kahuna who knew Kahikili's family genealogy, which I was not able to track down. I was able to integrate it into the book as well as with Keua's genealogy because I thought, well, both need to be presented. If it's undefined as to who was really the dad, then you needed to present both of these ancestries in order to give it some validity. And there are other places in the book where I did the same. If I had more than one version, I tried to integrate a second version in in order to broaden the reality of it. What's interesting about this book are really the, the images. I am an archivist. I've been collecting Hawaiian historic pictures for probably 35 years now, and I have a large archive. Uh, I was challenged by the fact that how was I going to illustrate the part of Kamehameha's history saying he was born in 1750, again, an estimated date. How was I going to do the next 40 years of his life when there was nobody doing pictures of these people? I ended up over on the Big Island, found a greeting card or a card done by Brooke Parker, got his name, tracked him down over here on Oahu, called him up, told him what I was doing, ended up going to his studio, we ended up talking, and when I saw what he had done visually, I knew this was a key part of making this book really come to life visually. So I've integrated many of his pictures in there. Uh, another artist, Edward Caton, who did lifestyle pictures of that t- same time frame, plus many of the pictures that came out of post-Cook arrival, where the various artists on the ships who came did pictures of various people. So I tried to integrate all of that, contemporary things, pictures like Brooke did that preceded it, 
And it's, I think, a very solid mix of both visually and gives a whole uh, a sense of who we were talking about. And do you have a, a favorite image in this book? I like many of the pictures. I had two favorites, actually. One was Brooks' picture of Kahikili. He, uh, to me, it's a dramatic picture, and it posed, it just made him, uh, who was a key character in what was going on, really made him come to life for me, what he might have looked like, uh, what he represented in, in Hawaiian history. And the, the image is of him with the helmet, yes. the traditional helmet. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I first saw these helmets, I remember thinking, gosh, I think I've seen these before. Where have I seen them before? And then I saw something recently with Tibetan monks, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, there's, there's a similarity here. Many years ago, being uh, kind of intrigued by Tibet back when I was a child, uh, I saw the, uh, the, the uh, not inauguration, but the uh, investiture of the Dalai Lama back in 1950s in a documentary done by Lowell Thomas in Cinerama. And it intrigued me totally. And then later on, when I got familiar with Hawaiian history and I saw the helmets, I drew the same conclusion. I said, my God, these are exactly like the helmets that the Tibetans wore. Uh, I don't know where the parallel comes from. Uh, I have no idea if there's a connection. It doesn't seem logical that there was. And yet the visuals are very, very similar. Yeah, striking. Yeah, striking. So what's the other uh, second favorite image The other that you was have? Edwin Caton was another artist who I have pictures of his lifestyle pictures. He has one of a kahuna outside of Pu'uonua Honau now in the water off there, which struck me as particularly beautiful and evocative of the time frame. And I'd say those are the two that are my absolute favorite in the book. Talk about the about Parker's connection then. Well, Parker's lineage is through Kane Kapole, one of Kamehameha's 30 wives. I don't know exactly how many generations he's removed, but it's seven or eight as a great-great-grandson through that uh, Kamehameha line. So he and his father were both uh, really students of their own family history. And when I went to Brooks' studio and saw the research he had available, what he knew about all of these various people and about his own family genealogy, the paintings he had done to give a visual presence to people who were otherwise not visually created at all. It was fascinating. I found him an absolutely fascinating person to talk to and obviously very impressed by his knowledge and his understanding. That was book author Alan Seiden, whose new book is Kamehameha, Destiny Fulfilled. It features the history of the native Hawaiian monarch who united the islands. The book also features the art of Brooke Parker, who traces his lineage to the king. And that's it for today's show. Now back to Pledge Central. 